Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned at a Punk Splits. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again I'm bringing you a conversation with two people that have been on the show before, coming together. Sometimes they know each other, sometimes they don't. In this case, they did not know each other, but both had a mutual fandom. Daniel Maccabe, who is an incredible independent wrestler and a musician playing in several different bands, many, many bands over the years. And someone that Gerard Cosloy, record, independent record empresario, legend, uh, wonderkin, uh, Gerard, someone who first with Conflict and then with Matador Records and 12XU Records and, and a bunch of other stuff on the side, has constantly, constantly, constantly had his ear to the ground and been instrumental in discovering many many beloved bands over the years and is someone that I have a deep respect for as illustrated by the fact that he has been on the show four times in various forms over the years. You can go back in the past and check out his past appearances. Daniel's been on the show before as well. You can find both of these guys on social media. I don't know how much Gerard wants you to find him on social media, uh, but Gerard does have an incredible radio show, which I will link in the bio. The radio hour that feels like two hours is a fantastic listen. And as I said previously, Gerard is someone who has always had his ear to the ground, has unbelievable taste in music, and has turned me on to a lot of cool stuff over the years. So check out his radio show. And for Daniel Maccabe, if you want to come see him wrestle and you live in Canada, then come out to the fucked up hallucination tour that we're going to be doing across Canada starting. Well, if you're listening to this podcast tomorrow, when, I mean, when you're listening to this podcast, when it drops tomorrow, but if you're listening to this podcast afterwards, hopefully you'll listen to it while we're still on the road. Uh, we're going to be going out across Canada. You can find out more information at fuckedup.cc or over at hallucinations, social media and websites or Daniel McCabe's social media websites. And it's going to be like a wrestling music extravaganza, there's going to be other wrestlers. Sebastian Wolf's going to be doing some stuff. There's going to be other appearances from other wrestlers along the way. It is going to be fun. I'm as excited as can be. It's very late. I'm about to go to the airport to fly out and uh, start this tour. So uh, I apologize if I'm uh, rambling. All right. Well, I'm not going to ramble on anymore. I don't think there's too much more to get to in terms of uh, setting this thing up for you. That's it. Uh, I will see you on the next episode. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Gerard Cosloy and Daniel Maccabe on Turn Out a Punk Splits. Daniel, Gerard, Gerard, Daniel, welcome back hey. to Hi. the show. Hello. This is <laughs> this is Gerard. This is your fourth appearance on the Turned Out a Punk network of affiliate type shows and daniel this is your second appearance but this is both your first appearances on a turned out of punk splits so i'm i'm honored to have you here for this format i'm wondering um, what I, kind of I'm, I'm wondering what kind of fixture i am if i've been on that often you know well, that, like who, who is who is the prototypical like thing that thing that wouldn't leave on the talk shows <laughs> back in the day you're the harvey uh, p car of turned out of punk Oh, God. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, not at all. In fact, you're probably the most requested guest and one that people always, like people in music, 
like who play in bands or, or labels or always bring up your episode to me. So that's, you know. that's very kind. Although I was one of the early ones. So that's, uh, you are, I, I guess that, that would explain it. I get asked about those episodes almost as much as anything. Really? I mean, there, there've been a couple of occasions where like, I'm like paying for like food or something and someone will say, Oh yeah, you're that guy from the podcast. <laughs> well, you, you you absolutely have people listening because no no one's ever brought up any other podcast to me ever. <laughs> it's funny, Robin Hitchcock. I just had Robin Hitchcock on the show last week, and I was like, "Oh yeah, you know, we're kind of label mates in a roundabout way." And he's like, "Oh really?" And I'm like, "Yeah, we were on Matador." And he's like, "Oh, who'd you know at Matador?" And I'm like, "Oh, Gerard." He's like, "Oh, Gerard." I always really wanted to meet him and hang out with him more. Like he was always, he's like, he talked about you like you were a jackalope, like someone that was very hard for him to catch. And he wanted always that's, to talk to you. That's no, I mean, we actually did spend a fair bit of time together when I lived in London and, uh, and he was, he was, he was there at the time. I think we went bowling once. That's uh, amazing. But uh, yeah, I, I have fond memories of, I think I'm not bragging here. I think, uh, I showed Robin Hitchcock Napster. He'd never seen it before. And <laughs> and when he saw how many of his songs were on Napster, uh, his response was, uh, I don't know if I should feel ripped off or, or complimented. <laughs> I was like, well, you know, like 30 years later, we're still trying to figure that out. So. I, I was in a band years ago that never really did anything, never played out of Vancouver. But we did put out an LP that sold maybe 30 copies. And the first time I found one in the used bin in one of the record stores here in Vancouver, it was like, I don't know if this is like <laughs> how I should be feeling about this. If this is cool, like to find it in the wild or if it's really sad that one of those 30 people didn't enjoy it. So I, I think the question here is like, how much was it going for in the used bin? I think if if I recall, it was eight dollars. So okay, not, that's not, not that's not respectable. That's not bad. There's there's no there's no indignity in having your uh, your your old record being sold for eight dollars when you when you find a record that you labored over and spent your own money to make and you were very proud of and it's in it's in the dollar bin or it's it's a fifty cent seven inch. That's the moment where it's sort of like uh, it's a little it's a little it's a little cringy. But also think about how many great records you acquired that way. Yeah, this is true. I I love when you're going through a bin and you find like a personalized copy of a record that someone was obviously very happy to give to this person, and like here you go. Uh, I have a I have a Get Real seven inch that was given to Martin Farkas, and I know that because his name is written limited to Martin Farkas on the back, and I found it oh in a used God. bin once, and it was like oh, that's so awesome. But I've been I, I've worked hard on records for people like hand drawn covers only to see them flip them. And like Gerard said, it's all about how much money it goes for. Then then I'll get offended if it goes for nothing. I, I, I had a weird experience a number of years ago. This is probably a decade ago here in Austin. A band that I was friends with and, and later would end up uh, working with, um, they had a split record with another band. Uh, the record was released um, by the bass player's brother. He used, you know, spent his own money to put this thing out. And uh, I found a copy of the record in the used bin at end of an ear. Um, and inside the record was a personal, personal type letter to the gentleman who was the um, music editor at the Austin Chronicle. And a type letter that was like, hey, this is our first release on this label. 
blah, blah, blah. And I mean, the guy flipped it. I mean, presumably without even bothering to open the thing where he would have seen this letter with his name on it. And uh, I just remember being so incredibly angry. I mean, I mean, aside from the fact that these guys were friends of mine and I liked the band, knowing that, you know, they had spent this money and put all this effort into doing it. And this guy is, you know, he's, he's flipping it for beer money, essentially. Um, and I, I always kept that in mind, especially when that individual ever asked me for uh, additional copies of records. So, you know, especially now when someone asks for a, a vinyl copy of the record, it's like, you better really want this thing because you could listen to yeah. it on a link. <laughs> the uh, yeah. uh, When I interviewed Don Bowles and Steve Albini together one time, Don Bowles brought up the fact that he one time sent Steve, after talking to him on the phone, a copy of the Celebrity Skin record with like a handwritten note and like an eight by 10 and all this stuff. And then he's like, yeah, Steve. And then two weeks later, I get a package in the mail from you and I open up. There's my letter torn to pieces. There's that photo torn to pieces. And you've written fuck you on the cover of the album and snap the record in half. And Albini's like, oh, that sounds way too harsh. I wouldn't have done that. And he's like, you fucking did it. You did it. <laughs> wow. I wonder if that's a true story. I you I will send you the clip. It's on video. We we were doing the interview at Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles. Oh my and god, that's a little over the top. Everything um, about it was surreal, Gerard. It was. <laughs> I mean, you, I mean, you, you you guys have seen Hustle and Flow, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. The movie. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the scene the scene at the end of the film where you know he he Terrence Howard gives Ludacris his 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 demo tape. And um, I mean, I think even at that point in the film, like cassettes were, were pretty, pretty much obsolete. And uh, Ludacris like has like thrown the tape in the toilet and that leads to a vicious beatdown at the hands of Terrence Howard. I mean, I think about that. I think about that scene all the time, <laughs> especially when anytime somebody's giving me a CDR or a tape or really anything, I'm like, don't <laughs> yeah, take <laughs> no it with both what, hands. <laughs> don't leave it don't leave it in the toilet don't leave it on the bar no. you don't want to end up bleeding on the ground because Terrence Howard took offense it, it is it is like one of those things that you can really see both sides of it because like you know you're in a band people hand you lots of demos like a label I can only imagine how many tapes and CDs you get passed and you want to give every single one of them the attention they deserve but it's just kind of overwhelming, like how much you have in your hands. And it's like, I'm never surprised when things fall through the cracks or don't get heard because there's just so much. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, Daniel, you must, you must've had, I mean, aside from, uh, you know, going through experiences like that, putting out, putting on a record and playing shows and stuff. I mean, there must be a number of instances in the wrestling world where you've met people that you followed for years and years, people that you've seen on TV, people that you followed on, on the internet. And I mean, I'm assuming that not every one of those interactions has been like a fantastic heartwarming story. <laughs> um, let me think. There's one name that like glaringly comes to mind as someone I shared a locker room with multiple times who, uh, was a name I, he wasn't like a television name or anything like that but has subsequently been outed as as a sex pest and someone who may or may not have countersued multiple women who accused him of things mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. 
that, that really narrowed it down. We're talking about <laughs> if you had just said out of a sex pest, this could be one of hundreds of people. But when you yes. added the bit about the countersuit, that really narrowed it down. But that yeah, was like a so, half a dozen, I guess, because there were a few that I think tried that move. Yeah, sure. This I think this is the more the most prominent one. Uh, yeah. Yes, I think, I, think we, I think we I think we definitely know who you're talking about. Um, are, yeah, are you so, wearing are, are you wearing an angel's hat? Uh, no, I'm wearing a Tacoma Rainier. Oh, Tacoma Rainier's hat. I'm sorry, I couldn't. Yeah, I couldn't see. It. I thought, man, what a what a weird weird move. That would be a funny coincidence. And bring, bring that up. So no, as 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 a as a lifelong Seattle Mariners fan, I will not wear yeah. a, a, a an angel's hat. But uh, but yeah, so um, I I shared lots of locker rooms with him and and never really got on with him uh, too well. Um, but like honestly, I I've been pretty lucky. You know, the whole like never meet your heroes or whatever mm -hmm. everyone both in music and and in wrestling who i like fandom is a funny thing like there's people obviously like i uh i respect a lot and, and who i admire but like no one that i i necessarily am like really like jaw drop like i can't believe i'm sharing a, a, a ring with with this person or, or a stage with this person it's happened two or three times oh that's a very sweet dog by the way <laughs> um a, a couple times that you know i've met people that are that i consider to be like true inspirations um one of whom is putting out a record tomorrow i might add who is on on your label and i i the, the couple times i've met ira from yola tango he's always been a, a incredibly nice um and and the big ones for me were we're getting to wrestle Yuki Ishikawa from Battle Arts and Negro Navarro, um, legendary luchador, and both were so amazing experiences. So I think I'm knock on wood. I I'm the lucky one that uh, I've never really worked with someone that I, I I've held in such high esteem and and had my. Uh, my hopes and dreams crushed before me. <laughs> There's been people who I knew going in, like this is going to be a challenge. And this guy has a reputation for being a dickhead and surprise. He was a dickhead, but, uh, but the other way, not so much, thankfully. Okay. That's pretty good. I find with wrestling though, it's so different than music, you know, like in music culture, like the idea of a fan in, in music is just someone that hasn't started a band yet. You know, and like there's obviously assholes, but I mean like punk rock music or indie music. Whereas I find in wrestling there is not with everyone, obviously, and I'm, I don't shouldn't generalize like this, but I mean there is that wall, right? Like there's there's the fan and then there's the workers, and there there is that divide between them. And I don't know if it's as easy to get. Well, I'm interested to hear what you think about it because I find with music people, it's it's easier to kind of like be on the same level than in wrestling because there is. There's an art to it that's so different. I try to bridge that gap, me personally. Like, that's always been, like, a goal of mine. And there's definitely I've people had, that do. I shouldn't have, like, that's what I said. It, well, not everyone, but, no, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, you're definitely but, one of the coolest people I've ever met. Uh, that's You're too kind. Um, yeah, so there's definitely people who are, like, there's a disconnect. And I think a lot of it comes from like the origins of wrestling is like the whole carnival thing and like terms like marks, you know, like I couldn't mm -hmm. imagine musicians, you know, referring to people as marks that, that feels so maybe I'm wrong. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, they're all marks to me. They're all, I just, I just stand there at the door with chalk. 
be like, this guy's good for 10 t-shirts. This guy's good for eight yeah. records. <laughs> Whereas like, I've definitely, I've been witness to people who I like, I think are cool people and like, I respect. And then like, but they like, you put them behind a merch table and they'll flip a switch and it's like, oh no, it's business time, you know? Right. Whereas like, I think maybe part of it is because this has never been my career and it's never going to be my career. It's always been a passion project. And so like I've been in those people's shoes when it comes to meeting musicians that I love. Right. Um, and so why wouldn't I want to make that experience as, as great for people? Because like I was a fan, I am a fan when it comes of, of wrestling, you know, I still am a fan. Sometimes you have to like, remember like, Oh yes, I'm, I'm a fan, but I'm also, I have to be professional in this situation when you share locker rooms with certain like legendary figures. Like it was just announced the other day that I'm going to be on a card with Minoru Suzuki next month in Vancouver, which is pretty cool. That's awesome. So, so, um, you know, like I gotta be professional, even though I would love to nerd out and ask him all sorts of questions about, you know, the second UWF and <laughs> Fujiwara Gumi and all these like, real deep head things like everyone else wants to ask them about new japan i can i can go deeper than that but um but uh but i'm not gonna do that so um but yeah i don't know i think i think you're you're right i've certainly been witness to it i just i try i'm trying to erase that when it comes to my own presence in in independent wrestling because i get it i i want to be you know i want to be as cool to to people as others have been to me so it's it's it's, it's interesting because i'm trying to think if if i can think of any musicians who actually look at their fans as marks yeah and, and I, I, I don't know any that would actually use the term i can definitely think of people at, at record labels that uh look at the at, at the fans uh as marks and they they, they certainly don't use that word but just in terms of uh how they approach it how they look at the audience as something to be um exploited and manipulated uh i i don't think that's nearly as um as uncommon as as we'd like it to be i think even in the independent music world even in the punk rock world there's a fair bit of uh carny behavior uh going on but um yeah, sorry. But it's but but I think that bands might might feel that way, and I've definitely heard. I've heard bands. I heard a band one a guy in a band one time tell me that they weren't bringing a tour bus on the tour because it was like setting in an autograph booth in these quote unquote shitty towns. You know, like I've heard I've heard some wild shit come out of musicians' mouths, but like they have to hide that. You know, like like what Daniel was talking about. Sometimes you're at the merch table, and like it would be the most mild Punisher shit at a concert that a merch person would have to deal with at a, like at a music show. And this kid will come up and the rest will just be like, fuck off. You know, they may not fuck off, but I've definitely seen some pretty harsh things come that I think in music don't necessarily, maybe in some genres, but certainly not. You, I don't know how long you'd last in indie rock if you were openly that antagonistic to your fan base. Well, Mark Kozilek had a career for a couple of decades. You're right. So you're right. <laughs> you caught me. <laughs> God damn it, Drew. So, yeah. <laughs> you suck my battleship. Yo, I I, I don't know if there's a there's no real way to segue into this, but just about meeting heroes. And if you don't want to tell the story, I'll edit this part out. But can you tell the story about interviewing the circle jerks? 
Oh, Jesus. Oh, my God. <laughs> what a terrible... Did I tell you that story already? You've told me this story. Never on the air. You've told it to me twice, and it is oh one of the most insane God. stories ever. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's a pretty bad story. I feel terrible telling you. We don't have now, to tell it. We don't have to... We can edit it I've, I've, I've kind of, I've kind of been, been nudged into it. So... um yeah, I was supposed to interview the Circle Jerks. It, it may have been for Boston Rock. I don't think it was for my own zine. But um, I went to the sound check at the channel, which I, I wish I could say that was a rare occurrence. But in those days, I would go to the sound checks a lot because it was the only way I could get in very often. This may have even been, a, I can't remember if this show was a matinee. I don't think it was. They were playing an evening show. And um, I'm not sure if it had been communicated to them if I was supposed to be doing the interview or not, I mean, they were not particularly thrilled or happy to see me. This was not one of those instances where it was a band that were readers of my zine or I had a rapport with. It was just sort of like they're there to do a job and I'm some annoying kid who they don't really want to want to interact with. So um, they do their sound check and they're getting ready to go. And uh, me and a friend of mine uh, were standing in the back alley behind the channel and those guys are getting in their van to head back to their hotel. And at one point, like somebody like revs the van up. I'm standing in the alley. And I came about two inches from like being run over by a speeding vehicle that is clearly heading right at me. Whoever was driving it didn't seem to give a shit that I'm standing right in the path of the vehicle. Um, and Al Barill of SSD literally uh like saved my life i mean he like fucking he, he speared me roman rain style and knocked me out of the path of this moving vehicle i'm not exaggerating i would i would probably not be here today if, if al hadn't intervened I'm, I'm sure al has had sat if al can even remember this incident he probably had second thoughts about, about <laughs> risking, risking his own life if not who he risked his life for I'm not even sure we ever did the interview. I mean, I think after that, it was like, you know, like call my mom and see if she can pick me up and give me a ride home. So <laughs> to transition now, you brought up Al from SSD. And when yeah. he, he was on the yeah. show, uh, he, he talked, uh, we talked about you on the show too, on that episode. But uh -huh. he, he like, I really did feel like he, there was like sort of this concerted effort in him to kind of like build a scene or build like the straight edge thing or the heart, like to kind of take it down a certain path. Yeah. Did you see that at the time? Like, could you see that? Cause you knew them prior to that even a little bit, but only, only shortly prior to that. I and mean, I think I told you before that I, I, I remember Al like placing an ad in the, in the Boston Phoenix looking for musicians. Yeah. I might have even answered the ad and we had a, a phone conversation. Um, I mean, the first time I met Al was at a black flag sound check. Everyone meets at sound checks apparently. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't think I, I don't think I picked up on it initially, but um, the speed with which they got things going, you know, like crew-wise, uh, at least uh, for an outsider, and I and I very much was an outsider. I was not like part of that scene. I was not like super close buds with those guys. Um, it was impressive to watch. I mean, especially when you knew all of these older kind of art rock bands who were kind of knocking around forever, not making records, not playing out of town, playing in front of the same 15, 20 people every night. And these guys with very few resources, you know, really kind of operating on their wits 
um, within like within lightning speed, they are making records and playing shows and going to other cities and building a rep, not just nationwide but even worldwide. It was uh, it was staggering, and I don't think there was a particularly like careerist uh, or mercenary bent to it. They just believed in what they were doing, and also it, it captured people's imaginations. That was the other thing. I mean, no matter how hard you work at something, no matter how organized you are, that doesn't necessarily mean people are going to like it and, and gravitate to it. Um, so it, it was incredibly impressive. You know, it's it's so weird, though, because you're someone like he he was just, you know, said he had no time for any of that art rock stuff, any of that sort of Boston punk stuff prior to. But like, were you you were a fan of some of that stuff, right? Like we did the little. Oh, yeah, issue. absolutely. I mean, I was I was then. And I am now. And and the idea that like the arrival of Boston hardcore, I mean, yeah, it did in a lot of ways draw a line in the sand of sorts. It, it really did throw down a gauntlet. And I'm sure to a lot of the older, uh, more nuanced Boston musicians, it was probably pretty threatening. I mean, with the possible exception of, of Mission of Burma, um, most of those most of those older dudes were kind of threatened or or confused. Uh, by hardcore i think some of them are probably confused by it to this day i mean with the possible exceptions of you know like burma the outlets and uh and johnny angel um most of the older guard and, and it feels weird calling the outlets the older guard because they were they were almost as young as the hardcore bands um yeah I, I think i think that scene was sort of like whoa what's this and and uh you know musically they couldn't figure it out the tempo was faster it was certainly an aggressive thing when they sort of got a load of what was going on in the audience it that probably threw them for a loop but um you know stuff happens stuff changes it's interesting how people always go back and revive the dark sinister stuff like i was thinking about this day with blasphemy and how blasphemy out of vancouver is this band that's constantly kind of gone through this revival. Like it seems like perennially since the early two thousands, there's been this sort of ongoing celebration of this band and how many bands from Vancouver don't get talked about or how many bands from the same time period as SSD and DYS just do not get talked about. But it's, it's always like the aggressive angry bands that seem to have like a timeless quality to them that are, are more ripe for revival or celebration by later, later generations. You're, you're talking within the confines of hardcore or just everything altogether? Everything in, in general, like even like the way Velvet yeah. Underground is so celebrated versus some other contemporaries, which might not have been as sinister in the lyrical content. Yeah, well, I mean, again, it's it's a it's a it's a personality game sometimes and some personalities are larger than life. And that 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 makes a big difference. But, um, you know, again, I mean, the, the bands, the, the hardcore bands at least the ones that I remember from, from Boston, New York, DC, whatever. I mean, they were not, they may not have been careerists, but they weren't shy about getting themselves out there in the real world. They didn't wait to rehearse for three years before making records and playing shows. And uh, even though many of them had very, very short lifespans, uh, almost all of them documented something in one way or another. And uh, I mean, I think all three of us on this call probably, you know, romanticize certain bands that never made records, mm -hmm. certain mm -hmm. bands that never toured outside of the region. And it's like, well, how come? How come there aren't more people who know about them? Like, how how would more people know about them? 
if they were pre-internet and anybody who cared is now in their 50s, 60s, or 70s, how would anyone know about it? Yeah. But I mean, I, I find it astonishing that say like a band like Siege, who um, you know, did not leave a deep catalog, did not play out very heavily in their lifespan. I mean, you know, all over the world, people know that stuff. And that, I mean, that blows me away. Only two officially released songs, right? The two songs of the yeah. Cleanse of Bacteria is comp and then the bootleg later. But it feels like by 90, people are already freaking about that band. Like, you know, five years after. It is, that's the other thing that's so interesting. It's like how much of this stuff was, in, and now I'm talking specifically about hardcore, it, it was instantaneously canonized. You know, like these records came out, kids knew about them around the country like minor threat you see that minor threat west coast tour footage they're fucking huge and there's no internet that's just all zines and word of mouth yeah which is which is which is fantastic and uh i mean word of mouth still exists it's just not it's just not out loud yeah yeah (laughs) but it feels like that's what happens in wrestling too in 2015 where like all the means to kind of promote yourself were then in the hands of people through like Twitter, through Instagram, through uh, one hour teas and all these sorts of like, you know, I guess post Colt Cabana. Well, actually, Daniel, like, is it post Colt Cabana, pre Colt Cabana? Because that's what it looks like as a, from a fan's point perspective, at least mine. Yeah, I think so. I think I think you can probably lump YouTube into there too honestly because that really controlled the means of distribution um and just opened it up in a in a real diy sense right um like word of mouth still exists it's just i i don't know what it is because even i've even noticed it in let's say the last four years like pre pre pre-covid post-covid in independent wrestling and i don't know if it's the case um in music but it just feels like it's it's so hard to you know the channels are there and word of mouth exists but getting someone to actually listen feels like it's harder because everyone has something to promote now everyone you know i don't know if it's just we we've, we've all been cooped up and it's like okay now is my chance to really like burst out because i had those 2 years taken away from me or whatever but it just seems that like now more than ever you're there's so much competition and i don't know if it's the same for music but um for wrestling it feels that way like it just feels like and i i don't know what people necessarily want anymore either that's the other thing is that what is going to catch someone's attention five years ago isn't necessarily what's going to catch their attention now so yeah, I it's it's I, I I think you're right, and I I see it. I definitely see that in wrestling. Um, I see it in music as well. I think um, I'm not going to say which of these two mediums is the easiest one to stand out in because I think you could probably make an argument either way. You know, anybody who would say, "Well, it's all been done," that's clearly not true in either situation. But um, coming up with something that's new does not necessarily mean you're going to come up with something that's going to be commercially successful. Um, The whole, yeah, I mean, the whole thing of what is or isn't going to capture someone's imagination, I think now, um, and I think this is true for both wrestling and music, 
that it's almost like you 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 fall into this thing where you if you're trying to compete you know if you're trying to compete on any level where you want to be noticed you want to be moving ahead with your thing um you have to you you can't simply be a talent you're not going to get there on merit and merit alone you 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 turn into a content creator and the content creation business is not necessarily art it's not necessarily conversation or dialogue and um you spend a lot of time creating stuff that's enriching other people <laughs> other than yourself you're propping up these isps you're propping up these social media platforms that don't really care about your scene or your band or your label or your culture and they really don't have the best interests of anybody at heart i mean we're seeing that now in some pretty obvious places so the idea that you know many of us not necessarily the three of us on this on this uh on this chat but that many of us are essentially beating our brains out um <laughs> creating uh content for free or mm -hmm. for you know who you know who and the other you know who it's like yeah it feels fucking great to be working for them <laughs> you know are we working for ourselves are we working for our friends our family our colleagues the people that are part of our respective scenes are we working for our culture or are we working for them and uh i i think the the answer is a, a pretty a pretty grim one um but I, I i was thinking a bit about at what moment in time and i'm thinking more about the wrestling now than the music at what point in time things began to flip for points of discovery because i'm i'm old enough now that I've been a lapsed wrestling fan maybe four or five times. I've probably had four. I probably had four or five moments in my adult life where I've thrown up my hands and said, "Yeah, I'm done. I'm done. I'm not going to watch this shit anymore." That's what. I and then something something happens to pull me back. And during the periods that I did stop watching, there were major seismic changes happening that. I didn't see coming and wouldn't have seen coming. And I mean, when I first started seeing independent shows here in central Texas, I mean, I literally had, I mean, I did know there were independent companies and circuits in the, re the, the rest of the continent. I was not so naive to think this is the only place where it's happening, but I had no idea how broad the, the talent base was. I had no idea how many different styles there were. And I had no idea how intense uh, some of the political rivalries were from city oh, to city, company to company. So sort of like, like learning about that, you know, almost from scratch after me thinking, Oh yeah, I, I know this stuff. I know this business. I didn't know shit. And, um, and that, that, that's been a real, a real eye opener. I mean, you want to, you want to talk about crazy fucking soap operas. Uh, you know, music music has got nothing on wrestling. No, and it, I like, I don't know. I think nine two thousand seventeen to me was like nineteen ninety one in music. You know, and I think we've just kind of been in that after ninety two ninety three period for the last few years, where you know the indies were were turned upside down, right? Dan well, I don't know. Like this is what I saw. Like I saw just so much talent out there in two thousand seventeen. It felt like 
there was more talent on the independents than in the major companies, or certainly a lot of the people that people wanted to see, the fans wanted to see. And then, you know, then we had a big signing thing that kind of happened. A lot of the companies turned out to be, some turned out to be sketchy. Some just went out of business. Some got bought out. And it really feels like, you know, the pandemic, I'm sure, was an issue and did not help. But, like, it feels like it's been a rebuilding process. Now it feels like this year at WrestleMania, there's a lot of other promotions running. But maybe they're just the big ones again. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's there's there's always a lot that run that weekend that weekend is insane and like so many people just lose their shirt that weekend just to say that they ran a show like our local independent ran a show wrestlemania weekend and it's like well we drew 30 maybe but you know but we did it right um and as someone who has wrestled on wrestlemania weekend shows in front of 30 people i can say that you know like Sometimes you just you always know, do it just to say that you did it, you know. Um, it's like South by Southwest. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic, fantastic analogy. I think Janella said the same thing about Mania Weekend a couple of years ago. Um, where, where, where was Mania Weekend two years ago? Two uh, years ago, it was in Tampa, and that is where I wrestled in front of thirty people. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's what what can you can you can you name the company? Uh, yeah, so I mean, like, uh, uh, IWTV, uh, which is a okay. streaming platform, right? Yeah. They that's the last year that they had kind of a hub venue, and it was in correlation with a promotion called ICW No Holds Barred, which is okay. kind of a. a I think a I'm, well, I, I'm sorry. Insane Championship Wrestling, right? I don't know what the I, I maybe I'm not sure what the I stands for. If I'm being honest, <laughs> they're, they're wacky company. Wacky, yeah. So they they their shows are either where they replace the ropes with chains, or they run in like some sort of cage that they uh, refer to as the pit. And the pit has many many forms that it that it takes part in. It it's usually just dependent on who the local promoter is because they do run in correlation with with a variety of of local promotions all over the, the east coast and and now into the south. So. Um, they were the ones who had the venue in Tampa, but then they kind of piggybacked with IWTV and a couple other promotions. And, uh, I worked on three or four shows there, but no one really drew all that well. ICW drew the best, but it was also because, um, I mean, we were still in the midst of a pandemic and honestly, like I, in hindsight, there's no way in my right mind I should have been there. And and getting in and out of Canada at that point was such a hassle. And I had to go through that hassle far more times than I cared to admit for the, the course of, of late 2020 all the way up until early 2022. And part of that was because of, of wrestling and because I was just itching to get out there and do it again. Part of it was because my fiance lives in Seattle. So that was also, you know, something that I was having to go through in, in order to maintain that relationship. But I, I did see a number of the IWTV matches from Tampa that mania weekend. And I remember, I, I can't remember the, the name of the show, but it was, it may have been on the Friday or Saturday night. Um, it was a match where, uh, New Jack was advertised uh, to participate. He might have shown up like three minutes before the match. He might have even shown up after the after the bell rang. 
I think this may have actually been his last his last public appearance or his last match. But I remember watching that on home at home on the laptop and just thinking, man, there's no one there. Yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing they can do to hide it. There's hardly anyone there. And I, I couldn't help. I mean, knowing having friends who run uh, independent companies, I couldn't help but think uh, how difficult that must be. And um, I, I went to, uh, I mean, I've, I've been to the different Mania weekends before, but last year I went to a bunch of shows in Dallas, both some big shows and some small shows. And uh, it was, it was pretty stark being at, you know, a show on Saturday night that was going head to head with night one of Mania, just, you know, 12 miles away. And there's 35, 40 people in the room watching, you know, some pretty awesome world-class talent, including people I've been a fan of for a decade. So, um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's sobering. That's, that's not, I mean, I've seen that in music before. The, the difference is usually in music, you, you don't, most of the time in music, you're not taking glass out of your head or trying to, trying to pop your shoulder back in afterwards. So. And I take offense about not taking glass out of my head, Gerard. You've seen me do that. <laughs> okay, well, you you you're you're the exception. But <laughs> I will say, not the I, shoulder, though. Thank God. Yeah, I yeah. Uh, thankfully, I I haven't had too many issues with that. Honestly, it, it's funny that you say that because, and maybe it's just because I'm u- more used to it in wrestling, but I find it way more. I don't know, use the word sobering. I think in to play to like a small crowd that's not responsive uh it, like uh, in music i i find that way worse i don't know i don't know why maybe i'm just more accustomed to it in wrestling or 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 what but i i, I think i don't know if there's i maybe i'm more adept when it comes to you you know the tricks of the trade when when you're working in front of a, a small crowd or mm. uh, a quiet crowd to try and liven them up in, in a wrestling ring and uh, I'm sure there are ways to do that uh, as a musician as well, but it feels like maybe it, it's not quite as as uh, on the nose. Like I can I can chop someone really hard and make a really loud sound, and a fan they're going to react. You know, maybe not the whole room's going to react, but someone's going to react. There, there's not necessarily an equivalent uh, to a band. I don't think there there is there is you 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 complain about the sound. And get into a fight with the sound man, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or, or fight or, with each other. Or, or you ask if 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 does, does anyone have a place for us to stay? True, that, that is that a always, great one. That always works. It always. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, like I think you know, and and once again, I've never wrestled, so you have a better idea of what these two dichotomies. But I think because in music, the whole thing is about trying to bare your soul. And you don't have the character to to hide behind. I find it the same thing, like the difference between being a quote unquote pure lead singer versus a lead singer that plays an instrument. Yeah. Pure lead singers will take every shitty thing that happens at that show on the chin because you're focused on that crowd the whole time. You can never retreat into the instrument. And that's why I find pure lead singers are always the craziest because they're constantly just dealing with fucking ego crushing moments. Whereas when you have that instrument that you can kind of retreat and you can kind of, you know, uh, I don't know, get I'd like through meditation type focus on something else and just kind of like take yourself out of where you are in that headspace. And I imagine wrestling, maybe it's the same thing. 
Yeah, I'm trying to think what the analog to, to like holding a guitar up to like, what can I focus on? <laughs> well, that's I, what I you're saying. The moves, like you, like you're saying, there's certain tricks that you know for True. for dealing with these crowds in the same way. Like you know, you can focus on that, and you can focus on the craft of what you're doing, as opposed yeah. to focusing on the fact that only 30 people showed up, and you've driven for seven hours, and you've got an eight hour drive tomorrow, and you haven't eaten yet, and you didn't get weed. And, 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 Maybe it's more like socially acceptable or more more the norm to like become combative with your with your audience too. Mm -hmm. Certainly, if you're a heel, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yes, there are there are bands who famously did that as well, but like, I don't know that it necessarily worked out as well for them. No, sometimes sometimes it works for a band like when they've got that kind of like like Oasis, right? Like Oasis kind of made their whole career of being heels. I mean, the first band that came to my mind was Fear, but I don't know. <laughs> Fear, Fear worked heel too. <laughs> Yeah, you know? fear, fear are play. Fear are playing here shortly. By the way, that really? blows my mind. They're really? playing in Vancouver. <laughs> That'd be fun. Like Lee Ving to me is like one of those singers that I would love. Like if America was England, he should be America's Nick Cave, or John Brandon should be America's Nick Cave. But he's like the same sort of thing. Like he should have a second act as a troubadour, you know, like with a with a Rick Rubin produced record. Well, I mean, was, like the, did, was I mean, right. there, there was kind of like a half-hearted nudge towards that, isn't Lee Ving in one of those Dave Grohl movies, like the I one the, the movie about yeah. the recording studio? He, yeah, he the, the, well, he, he's he got definitely the all jam with them. That he's in that HBO special they did, where they recorded the album in eight different studios across the U.S. or whatever. I'm pretty yeah. sure he he makes a cameo on one of the songs they did in L.A. or whatever. Yeah. I think I think there were multiple attempts to sort of like nudge leaving into this like kind of vague rock legend category. Like if it, it worked for Wino, let's do it for leaving. Yeah, I'm not sure it worked nearly as well for leaving. Yeah, I guess he hasn't had that, he, but he hasn't really had that solo record. Same with John Brandon. I was thinking about this the other day, like John Brandon doing like a solo record with like some weirder songs on it would be incredible. Like a like if if he had gone kind of the other way post laughing hyenas. Yeah, no, that's an, that's an interesting point. We could also talk for ages about why, you know, like the idea that like, you know, negative approach can play in front of a massive crowd, like really any, anywhere in North America and easy action will play for like a fraction as many people the next day. And like, which band is better? I don't know, but I yeah. know which band is as good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I know which band, when you see him do those songs, he's more passionate about these days. Yeah. Like, like it just, and, and I think that's the thing is, I mean, it's easier for him to do a negative approach show, right? Like, it's kind of like being a legendary wrestler where you just go out and you do the, the moves they want to see because they're there to see those certain things happen. And it's a lot easier for, I imagine with negative approach, he just hands that mic off to the crowd. They just do all the work. He just kind of leans back, does a couple bars, you know, passes it back to him. Not that John doesn't put ba all the effort in. Ba but. Barely, ha he just has. To, he's got the voice still. That's oh, the thing too, right? Yeah. So like, he doesn't really have to say anything. He can he's, just... got, he's got the voice and he's got the stare, and uh, yeah, a lot of people aren't going to cross paths with that. So no. What about I was, I was? I was wondering about. I mean, when when Daniel, when you were talking about um, the communication with an audience on stage playing guitar singing and for damien you, you're not encumbered by the guitar so you 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 there's there's sort of a burden on you to be more of a performer 
But I'm thinking yeah. about like voc vocalists who are not necessarily performers, vocalists that you would not necessarily see interacting with the crowd. Like, say, if you're singing with the Metropolitan Opera, like in a situation like that, do those do, do those men and women when they when they leave the stage at the end of the night are they mad that the audience wasn't on fire? Are they are they upset because they saw someone texting? I mean, I'm just, I mean, I'm, I'm, I actually wonder this sometimes. I would think, I would think with that kind of music, you have to be so focused on it, right? Yeah. I, I don't know. I, maybe because I can't sing like that, but I would imagine you'd be trying to like hold those notes and trying to like, and you know, if like, cause I used to play trumpet in the school band. I could play the Jurassic Park theme pretty good. And like, I was, that was all my concentration to try and remember to count, to remember the fingers for the things. Being on stage with, as a lead singer, all you're doing is kind of like, you're essentially in a drama class and everyone has to just watch you up there. <laughs> I'm going to dance for a little bit. I'm going to, you know, spin around. I'm going to do this thing <laughs> or that thing. And even if you're not <laughs> interacting with the audience, I think you're still up there just engaged with the audience, you know, like. I think Roger Daltrey, I heard him in an interview years ago talk about he started swinging the microphone around because it was kind of like his defense. And I think that's why I started doing it in Fucked Up is because it became like a little bit of fifth business to kind of do on stage where I didn't have to just kind of be immersed in what the audience was thinking or experiencing. And then it's like wrestling too. Like you do want to react to that audience and you do want to kind of go with what they're doing and try and incorporate that into the show. But if they're not enjoying it, oh man, you can't really incorporate that in the show. <laughs> I, I I can relate because like I've I mean it's been pretty seldom that I've done vocals in a band but like anytime I've had to whenever there's like pauses or instrumental breaks or whatever like I don't know what to do so I I absolutely feel for you Damien uh, on that front I'm I'm happy to have a guitar in front of me but uh but thankfully with wrestling like there's really um if you want to you have the opportunity to fill every last bit of vacant space that you can and uh or or as little as you want to too yeah. i don't know i there's a there's a little bit more of a, a fluidity to it yeah like i think the uh maybe, maybe jazz musicians understand how that feels or you know improvisational kind of but that's what i always say about wrestling i say it's like jazz because it's like something that yeah. went global and everywhere it went, it adapted to the local culture. And just like Japanese jazz is very different than a Brazilian jazz. But at the same time, they're all players. And I'm sure if you put those players in a room together, they could jam. And that's what I find so incredible about wrestling is like, you can take a wrestler from Japan and you put them in a ring with a wrestler from Mexico. And because of the language of wrestling and the art of wrestling, they don't have to speak the same language. They don't have to have ever met each other and they could be doing completely different styles yet, you know, or maybe this is just me buying into the illusion of it all. No, 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 no. Like I've, I've, I've told this story publicly before, but it's still like, I, I think it's the coolest thing that's ever happened to me. So I wrestled Negro Navarro, um, like four and a half years ago now. And like, I, I can do a similar style to him. So like, obviously we, we gel, but at the same time, I didn't really know what to expect going into the, the match and he showed up and like, this is the coolest thing. Cause like there's all sorts of, you know, like unwritten rules and in, in wrestling where you got to go around and shake everyone's hand. And especially if you're new in a locker room, like 65 year old Negro Navarro still went and shook every single person's hand in the locker room. Even though 
It was in Seattle. It was a locker room he'd never been in before. And he finally gets around to me. And I said, oh, you know, hi, nice to meet you. Like, we're wrestling tonight. And the first thing he asked me, he says, do you speak Spanish? And I said, no. I'm like, do you speak English? He says, no. And I said, oh. And I looked at him, I said, but we both speak wrestling. And he goes, hmm, see. Sí. And we literally called one spot for that entire match, which we called through the one other person on the show who spoke Spanish. So he was our interpreter. We planned one, one high spot in the middle. And then the entire rest of the match, as Negro Navarro put it through the translator, was whatever happens, happens. That's what he said to me. He said, whatever happens, happens, which was his way of saying, we're just going to go out there and rest. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's that because we we know what we're doing and 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 that's that's what's gonna happen so see that's why that's why wrestling is the fucking coolest and and that's like <laughs> like gerard was talking about being a laps fan like i've been a laps fan the last couple of years because i think seeing it live is the way i like to experience it and not yeah. seeing it live and then just you know all sorts of things but like how like I, I think that's the beauty of it that's the most incredible thing that there's no other art physical art form like this anywhere like you couldn't take two ballerinas that have never met each other don't speak the same language and be like okay go perform together on stage let's see what you do uh, like it just doesn't work right but you couldn't take yeah. but you can't there's just nothing else like that and i just feel like that's i just feel like that's what i want people to be brought into more like the the art and the craft of this like it there's that's, nothing else I mean, like it that's my like raison d'etre or whatever you know like that's my goal too you know yeah. like and i wish it was i wish it was easier because yeah. like to me that's amazing like i barely watch wrestling you know i don't want i watched the royal rumble a couple weeks ago at a friend's house and had to be like who's this person what like are they a bad guy now you know because like yeah. i don't pay attention to the major companies because it doesn't appeal to me right but like I see what my friends are doing on the independence or promotions that I've worked for. You know, I like to keep up with, with that people that I think are putting forth a more interesting and dynamic product and like people who I know are good at the craft and good at the art. And I want to see like, okay, like what, you know, what can you do now that I've never seen before? What have I seen that you can put an interesting spin on, you know? And, and, and it's, yeah, I think it's interesting if you have kind of a, a, a more of a than a cursory knowledge of, of what's going on behind the scenes, like how the, the bread is made or whatever. Right. But but um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that's interesting and that's what I want to do. And, and, and we've had this discussion before about being a small room wrestler and, and how that's just so much more appealing to me because there is that level of of uh, intimate intimacy and 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 the the physicality of it is just so much more apparent when you're in a small room in front of 150 people as opposed to being in a stadium in front of 20,000 people so yeah. i found yeah, it like, I, mean, I feel i feel that way as a fan as well i mean i i go to a lot of smaller independent shows some of them are great some of them are kind of whatever but there isn't there's an element of unpredictability to, even to the worst ones that I appreciate and on the very rare occasions that I do go to a big show. I mean, I've been to a handful of AEW shows. I, I, I haven't been to a WWE show in well over a decade, but I see a lot of their, um, they don't call them pay-per-views anymore. What do they call them now? A premium like live events. Premium yes. live event. Yeah. I see some of the premium live events and um, it's not that it's all terrible. I mean, there, there's occasionally, very occasionally, 
a great storyline. There's there's no shortage of, of very talented people, but those shows, the way they're presented, um, it, it feels like it's it's more about crowd control uh, than it is about um, telling a story or really any anything that I, I would find interesting. I mean, even the AEW shows that I've I've had a really good time at and enjoyed the way they put it together. Um, it's not the same thing as being in a room with 150 other people and you're up close and, and to, to paraphrase Michael Jarrah, you can, you can smell the sawdust, although it's not, it's usually not sawdust. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that's, and, and yeah, I mean, I, th- that, that is fun. And, and that has a lot of parallels to how I like to see music performed. You know, I mean, see, seeing a, sh- a show, in a smaller space, you see the interaction between the players. Some things are going to go wrong. Some things are going to go right. But you you occasionally catch lightning in a bottle in a way that you're not going to experience uh, seeing somebody playing in a, a sports arena or a, or a big barn. But the the, the, the the comment you made earlier, Damien, where you um, made the analogy with jazz around the world, that, that kind of got me to thinking. Um, who who is the Winton Marsalis of uh, of professional wrestling? I guess I guess Jim Cornette would be the Stanley Crouch <laughs> of, professional, of professional wrestling. But who who is the Winton Marsalis of of pro wrestling? The person who is so ensconced in their trad worldview that everything cool that's happened in the last twenty years they can neither relate to or they, they just can't give it any any credence uh i would like most of the guys i met when i was making the wrestlers like i'd be like trying to talk to not most of the guys i'm like a lot of the guys that were in the wwe or or that kind of like like a stadium wrestler in the same way there's a stadium band uh they would be talk about how they just had no understanding about how anyone could like this deathmatch stuff which i can totally understand people's criticisms of but at the same time, to like watch some of these wrestlers now doing deathmatch has been very interesting to see happen too, where these guys have kind of come around. But yeah, there was like a lot of people that were that I met that were uh, I don't know, just very, very like no, this is what Jim Cornette's like that too, right? Like he hated yeah. the wrestlers. He talked shit on that show when it came out because he was like, ah, he's getting in all this shit that just has nothing to do with it. He's got a vision of wrestling that is. 70s 60s probably even earlier he probably loves the 40s era like type thing of wrestling where it's like this sort of tough guy shit kicker dudes just going out there laying it in and you know having sex with ring rats afterwards and just living this sort of territories cliche yeah no 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 flippy shit yeah. No comedy, although there certainly was a fair bit of comedy. How can that guy? How yeah. can that guy like talk shit on comedy wrestling? I grew up watching him do comedy wrestling. Like that's all I knew yeah. him as as a kid. Yeah, no, it's very it's it's very selective. No, definitely. I mean, that's that's why I made the the Stanley Crouch uh, comparison. But I'm wondering who is the sort of like grandfather in the wrestling business? Who? I mean, I I mean, I, I I've seen the tweets. From certain people who I, I I always figure it's in character, you know when 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 they when they talk about, you know well you won't see me wrestling in the bingo hall or whatever 
And then, of course, some of them do end up wrestling again in the bingo in the bingo hall. But I mean, in most instances, I, I, I that that feels like shtick. I'm just wondering who actually believes it. The, the 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 ones that are the most maddening and like I don't have a name specific name because there are so many of them and like most independent workers or or promoters will refer to them like colloquially as 40 milers uh which is someone who won't drive more than 40 miles for a booking um and those are always the most opinionated people who have never really done much outside of their area to to speak to it as um uh you know authoritatively as as they typically do um about what's wrong with the industry and how things need to be done and how people should and shouldn't work and in some instances they make they make good points obviously like it's not like it's just you know complete nonsense but they're they're almost always the the first person to stand up and offer you an opinion that sometimes no one asked for <laughs> yeah well th- thankfully music doesn't have any legends in their own mind everybody is uh, yeah so no, they're all grounded very, very, very humble <laughs> and, and <laughs> it's it is uh yeah, it's it's interesting when you you look at now how much wrestling has opened up, like in the fans' minds as being this global thing, but it mm-hmm. always was a global industry, right? Like guys would travel to Japan or Mexico and do shots down there, and you know there were tours into different countries where they'd be interacting with different talents from different places. So it's always been a global thing. It feels like as a business, and and just now I think the fans are catching up to how global it is and it and and te- technology is catching up is what it is YouTube, right and like that, you said, yeah. that's that's what's made it so like yeah it's it's been a global thing forever but you know but uh, it was the real niche people who were you know who owned multiple vcrs like like me um uh who were really driving that and had knowledge of of you know particular promotions or or wrestlers or whatever which uh actually i was gonna ask this question anyways but were were you a tape trader at all Gerard, back in the the like the 80s or 90s or no i and i i wouldn't have really had any friends to trade the tapes with i mean i had very very few friends uh in those days who were wrestling fans most of the people i knew who were kind of involved in the music scene and whatever um i mean a handful of them would check it out from time to time but most of them thought it was you know kind of lowbrow garbage and sure. uh and, and i wasn't really i mean i probably drove people batty always talking about it it's like well you shut the fuck up with this uh, wrestling <laughs> stuff um so yeah i i didn't really have anyone to trade the stuff with but at, at at a point where um you know it became obvious that there was other stuff going on that you couldn't simply see on WTBS or you couldn't see on Saturday night, Saturday night's main event or whatever. Yeah. I, I would, you know, buy VHS tapes from different people. And, uh, and, and that, I mean, that's how I got to see um, stuff from Japan. I mean, sadly, one of the, one of the people that I did attempt to buy videotapes from was that dude at RF video who um, <laughs> habitually wouldn't send the merchandise. Yeah. It's That's like, one of the yeah, least of his crimes, I think, though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it is the least of his crimes. But I'm just like waiting and waiting. I, I, I'd call up and be like, man, I, I ordered like 
these eight tapes and you're like, Oh, don't worry. I'm going to send them right now. And it's like, yeah, this is, this is, this is exactly like trying to buy records. <laughs> exactly the same thing, you know? And finally, after like months and months, I, I, he had a table set up at um, an ECW show in Queens. I'm trying to remember the play, maybe the, the, El- the Elks Lodge on Queens Boulevard. I'm, I'm, yeah, I might- like the, the Madhouse of Extreme, as it was referred to. Yeah. And I'm like, like, hey, buddy, you know, like I, I've, I've written to you like four times about these tapes. And he was just like, you know what? Just take whatever you want. Just, just take whatever. And at that point, I realized that I was not the only person he was sniffing <laughs> on the tapes. He was probably just like cashing the checks left and right, letting the shit pile up forever. And uh, he was probably being accosted every time he went out to a show. Somebody was like. Where's my fucking tapes? So, hell, hell of a way to uh, to do business. Wrestling and and punk and hardcore um, have this really strong connection, you know, and in, in, in fan bases too. I find there's there's certainly a lot of overlap. Actually, I want to ask you, you did you contribute to that punk uh, zine about wrestling that came out in the '80s? Like Bob Mold, the Stretch Mark guys, all contributed to it. Do you know that thing? Yeah, I remember it, but I was not not a not a contributor. Would you ever talk to any of those dudes about wrestling? To Bob, yes. I mean, Bob Bob and I were friends in those days, and uh, you know, I was definitely aware of his. I mean, he. I mean, I can't remember. He there was a, there was a there, there was some sort of AWA long sleeve shirt he used to wear on stage a lot. So it wasn't like he was not like hiding his wrestling wrestling fanship. And there were, I think there were, there were a handful of people in the upper echelons of the AWA in those days who he, I don't know if he was close friends with them, but I mean, I think, I think he knew like Blackjack Lonza. Yep. He would set up chairs. I'm I'm pretty sure he, I can't, I've read his books. I can't remember if it was in that or in in other interviews he's done. He was friends with Wally Carbo, who was one of them. So, and I think he would like roll up to shows occasionally and get to like, kind of play like heel manager type like he would just kind of oh. would uh yeah just kind of shoot the shit but and, and jesse the body would go to husker do shows too seriously yeah there's apparently that, a photo that of jesse feels like more of a stretch to me well this is this is from bob's mouth bob said bob was like yeah no jesse would come to our shows because i was like were any of the wrestlers into it back then one time i met kevin sullivan at a show and, uh, you know, I got introduced to him and I'm like, yeah, well, we're just chatting about music. And I had heard that he was super tight with that band, Nasty Savage, um, that he would like go. They were, they, were Florida, they were a Florida band, right? Florida metal band. Right. And I'm like, figure he had was, like a vague satanic thing going on. Yeah. Yeah. And he was like a Boston dude around the time of the modern lovers. I'm like, so maybe he was into this stuff. So I remember this show and it's kind of loud. And I'm like, hey, I want to ask you, were you ever into punk? He's like, punk? I'm like, yeah, punk. He's like, definitely, definitely. I'm like, oh shit, I do this podcast. You should come on sometime. We can talk about punk music if you're into it. He's like, I'd love to come on. I saw I can turn Tina Turner. I saw Funkadelic. I saw uh, Bootsy Collins. <laughs> awesome. That would have been a good conversation. I would still love to have him on the podcast. I'm sure we could make it work. I would just like to hear about him hanging out with Nasty Savage, you know? 
That's, he lives that's... in Washington now, in like the kind of the islands off of the west coast of Washington. Yeah, yeah. That's the uh, one day I want to go out there, fish with him, smoke weed, and just talk. That's the Bob other thing. Mold was the Bob Mold was the first person who told me about the Observer. Like I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know about, I didn't know about the Observer in like eighty eighty five or whatever. And uh, yeah, when I first, I first began subscribing and. Uh, it was a very different looking publication then than it is now. What was it still the observer with like an O in there? The, the mis, misspelling of the observer? I think at that point, yes. Um, <laughs> but uh I mean it wasn't nearly as polished then, but the, I mean there was there were there were some amazing similarities, like the the kind of the the the, the rambling nature of it. Um some of the, the, the level of detail was was pretty incredible. And uh I mean, I'd never seen anything at that point that you would refer to as a dirt sheet. So actually seeing a publication that, um, you know, acknowledged, you know, if you'll excuse the expression, that everything was a work and actually talked about things like what people got paid, what was going on with people's careers, what was going on with, you know, trouble people got into. I mean, that was that was absolutely mind blowing. Yeah. No, it, I I think the uh, that's got to be one of the longest running independent publications. Now I'm thinking about it. now that Maximum Rock and Roll's gone. Uh, apparently, Maximum Rock and Roll tweeted the other day, so Maximum Rock and Roll is probably back. But uh, but like you know, Observer's been around forever, right? Like eighty two, eighty three. He he took a break in the eighties because he got a full time job working for a stalker magazine. Um, a stalker but, magazine. Stalker, like. Uh, football <laughs> oh, oh oh soccer i need a stalker magazine i'm like this stalker. is the dave Milzer chapter that i do not know about no, no. So well, he, also, he also had a very brief spell I'm, I'm not sure what it paid but he also had a, a brief spell uh working for a publication called the national yes which was i, I don't remember if it was if it was a usa a usa today related but somebody essentially attempted to launch a daily sports newspaper, like, an, like a daily sports newspaper in the United States that you would you would buy at the newsstand, and uh, it didn't last very long, but it was pretty good initially. And the the idea that they gave Dave any space at all to write about wrestling as a legit thing, because I mean, in those days, any wrestling coverage you saw in the sports pages was all completely um you know like, like i'm trying to remember the guy who did the, the 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 daily news the new york daily news wrestling column he he, he wore a mask <laughs> it, it, but he was the guy that he wrote the book too right the the wrestling babylon book is it that guy terry something maybe yeah it might it might have been but uh, i mean yeah it was it was completely unprecedented that there would be any sort of like serious coverage of wrestling either either as a business or an art form like that was that was completely at the time unprecedented in uh in in normal journalism so yeah well and this is where i'm gonna gonna show my my historian muscle uh yeah the the uh the national was run by frank deford who was uh I think he was maybe editor of Sports Illustrated at one point too, but um, yeah. And yeah, Dave had a weekly column and 
And that would have been like 89 to 91-ish maybe or in that ballpark. Um, and I think Davis stated that like the notoriety that he got from doing the national is what led his subscriber base to growing to a point that he could do the observer like full time and not live at home with his parents and like grow it to what it became today, you know, where like he's, he's doing very well for himself. And yeah, I mean, it's, we're coming up on like 40 years where like, he doesn't really, I don't, I don't think he's missed a week. He he's, he's gotta be up there as far as people who have written the most words about, a single topic like yeah. worldwide ever so yeah because it would be like if max rock and roll was done by just timmy ohannon yeah <laughs> every 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 week oh, for 40 years yeah <laughs> yeah oh that is that's wild like you know and that's the thing i find like the the similarities between the two worlds are are there because like they're both worlds that you can kind of like like you know not saying that it's not hard to break through but they're worlds that you can kind of create your own lane in you know like there's their worlds that are like the like you know you can be dave Meltzer, you can be a guy who's just like a fan that wants to know more and ends up building an entire type of media well i the one the one parallel i can appreciate and 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 i'm gonna try to keep this short but i mean the one, one parallel i can appreciate is that there, there's absolutely a history of people in the wrestling business who began as sort of over the top mega fans who probably stuck their nose into the business too early and ended up having a profound impact on what would happen later on. I mean, Cornette, who, who I'm not going to put him on a pedestal, but I mean, the fact of the matter is he was, you know, um, from a very young age, you know, he got involved and got his hands dirty and was given an opportunity to do stuff professionally semi-professionally whatever and he absolutely made absolutely made the most of it Heyman, Heyman yeah yeah Heyman Heyman was not not the same trajectory necessarily but in terms of like getting involved getting people to buy into his shtick worldview whatever and you know the idea that he has been in the business for this many years um I mean, if, if you if you had seen what he was doing uh, as a manager in Atlanta, what he ended up doing in New York and Philadelphia, there, there's no way you would believe that, you know, fast forward 35 years later, and he's going to be on national TV every week as a, as a central character, ne never mind uh, his role behind the scenes. Um, and there, and there, and there's other people you could, you could, you could, absolutely say this about as well going up to people who are very prominent in the independent scene today i think i think the, the one thing that you can't really get away from is that um there were opportunities for for white dudes over and over and over again and that for anybody who doesn't fall into that description it's not it's it's not so easy to get fast tracked. It's not so easy to um, to get the opportunity, and that's and that's certainly true in music as well. And uh, you know, hopefully things are opening up a lot more. Hopefully, there's more instances now where um, you know it's it's not just going to be one particular worldview, one particular style. But it, it takes uh, it it's I mean at, at least at least at least we're more aware of that now. 
Well, that, I, I, I hope we are. Well, that's the one thing with wrestling, though, is is is. Uh... Well, I guess I guess the, the I mean the the other parallel is is that both both wrestling and music just seem to have like endless instances of he's always been cool to me. You know. Oh God. I, oh, God I, don't, yeah. I don't know which yeah. of the two oh. scenes coined the phrase first, whether it was it was music or wrestling, but it, it seems like they're 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 kind of running neck and neck. I think that's entertainment in general, right? Like yeah. in Gilbert Godfrey, that was his running joke on his podcast. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess to be fair, it's it's also academia, it's politics, it's it's it's, it's even working at Home Depot or Wendy's. It's not. It's 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 everywhere, unfortunately. It's it, it, yeah. It's discrepancies in power being exploited. It's it's yeah. It's all sorts of things. It, it's it knows no bounds. Well, now we have definitely really ended on a dead <laughs> <laughs> on a, a more positive issues note i can't wait till you two get to meet in person at some point and yeah, i hope i'm I look, there i look forward to that as well i hope i'm there in, in texas or in vancouver or maybe toronto who knows i i have not been to texas in in uh uh god 10 years now i i i went to the last three uh chaos and Teos festivals and uh and from the sounds of it austin has changed maybe not for the the better subsequently but uh but uh, i know there's a lot of cool wrestling in texas and and uh and i, I do want to get down there at some point hopefully so well we will we will do our best to try to make that happen yeah it's it's very likely that you and i have been in the same room multiple times if you were at the last three chaos and chaos uh events of uh of timmy's it's it's almost certain you and i were in the same room a couple the, times I, before before we leave i i had like two questions that were just to kind of tie you into to independent wrestling one uh do you ever get recognized at independent wrestling shows like by do workers know who you are or like recognize like what you what you have done or or are you pretty like um like clark kent yeah, uh, yeah, I think Clark Kent, Clark Kent is being pretty generous. I think I think they sure. probably just another another Mark who who looks a little too old to uh, to be there. Yeah, I don't think anyone. I mean, I mean, there's some people here, uh, some people who work the Central Texas shows who just know me because they've seen You're me a, shows a lot and they they they've seen the stuff that I, I mean, I, I take a lot of photos at shows, so people kind of know me from that. But I don't think any of them really know me from the other stuff I do, nor nor would I expect them to. There have been a handful of times that just like other other you know other paying customers have been like, oh yeah, you're blah blah blah. But that's only happened a handful of times, and I, I wouldn't expect it to happen too often. Fair enough. And then, are there any like secret, like deep wrestling heads in independent music, like or oh. or? Or is everyone exposed out there as as far as like the Bob Molds of this world? But like, is yes. like secretly like Stephen Malcolmus like a a, yeah. a big like, Japan pro wrestling fan or something? No, Steven Stevens. I don't think Stephen Stevens a huge sports fan. I mean, Stephen yeah. certainly knows his 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 uh, his football and his basketball and his baseball. But I I don't believe he has any particular interest in the. Uh, in, in the world of of uh, of, uh, of wrestling pro or otherwise, I'm trying to think like who I know in, in that world who's a fan like like a real fan. Um, I mean Matt Corvette 
Matt Corvette from Pitteens uh, is is certainly more than conversant with this stuff, and and I don't I don't want to I don't want to blow him up with with um. Well, yeah, I'm not even I'm not even going to say anything about the, the the character that he's playing uh, in in the ring these days. You you can you can look it up if you're so inclined. This way, I can't be blamed for uh for 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 blowing his cover. I think Brad um, might have. I think my Brad might have blown up his spot when Brad from Piss Jeans was on. Okay, then then it's it's already it's already been done. But uh, but Brad certainly Brad broke in the same class as Eddie Kingston. Oh, okay. That out out of um, Chikara. 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 Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's I mean, Chikara is an interesting example. Like I during the period that I had pretty much like like from the time that I moved from London to back to the U.S. I mean, I was there, you know, I remember seeing like York Hall shows written about in Power Slam, whatever, but I, I didn't go to any of them when, when I lived there. I came back here and like, I literally did not know that Chikara even existed until like, you know, sometime in the mid, uh, the mid 2010s. So there was, there was tons of stuff happening here that I, I completely missed, missed the boat on probably at the height of its, uh, height of it's it, it being interesting but uh daniel daniel free from um bad sports um oh i you video, know what? tv tv's daniel he's a, he's a huge wrestling fan very very knowledgeable um goes to a lot of shows he he absolutely knows his shit i i have a bad sports shirt upstairs that is in the bad street usa font oh fantastic and- and uh, I saw them play a couple times when um, Dirt Nap had their, I guess it would have been their 10th or maybe maybe 15th anniversary. They did a couple nights up here in Portland and Seattle in the, or maybe 2013, I want to say. Um, and uh, yeah, I definitely went up to him and then asked for the, the Freebirds shirt. And he kind of gave me a little smile like, all right, this guy knows what he's talking about. So, <laughs> so that's one that I did know because... Um, at one of those chaos and chaos is actually, I saw him play in that band video that he was in. Yeah. Video was and, and he basically was just being like a heel persona, like between songs and cutting promos about how great video were between video playing songs. It was, it was something like I was, I was turning to everyone around me. Like, you don't understand how genius this is. This is, this is amazing. But yeah, no, he was, he was great at that. And, and for a while with his new band, he was doing a very similar uh, kind of shtick. He, he might've dialed that down and it, it seems like that's actually helped because it seems like people actually like the new band. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, he's, he's fantastic. He certainly is, is a, a, a great student of, uh, of heels on the mic. And um yeah, I mean the typical video spiel would be like his his intros would be along the lines of you know you're all very lucky to be here, you know this is like the greatest thing you've ever seen, you know you don't you really don't deserve it. Around the time that you know they they had they had one record on Third Man, and he absolutely like milked the hell out of that with the whole thing of you know like finally Jack White has done something interesting. With his with his money and his career, he's finally you know he's he's finally recognized like raw genius where he can find it and yeah I mean Daniel's fantastic, great great musician too not just not just the shtick fantastic musician yeah and and I will tell you one thing if I was going to make a 
wrestling tag team, Jack White would be one of my first picks. Dude is ripped to shit. Well, um, I mean, I mean, what, I'm trying to think of the uh, the fucking uh, like when we met him, that, that dude, that dude, he clobbered years ago. That guy, yeah. Jason. Yeah, dude, when he, the guy, um, what was that band? You're right. I can't remember. But, like, when we met him at Third Man, he came out. He was wearing this tight-ass black T-shirt. And he, he looked like he could have been in the Shield without the flak jacket on. Like, he was, like, like that. when you see Carrot Top and you're like, oh, my God, that guy's ripped. Like, it was like that. You know, and it's like, oh, yeah. no wonder he pounded that dude. Like, I would yeah, not. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was Jason from the Von Bondies. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, I mean, I'm, I mean, I was not an eyewitness but yeah, it was in it was in twenty two thousand three. Um, I, I think I think it had something to do with uh, a record that. Uh, well, actually, I really have no idea. I'm not I'm not going to quote from from Wiki, but yeah, there was a a public uh, confrontation at a show, and uh, allegedly, if if you were to believe the photo, <laughs> the photo of Jason's injuries, I mean, man. Uh yeah I I you're you're not gonna catch me talking shit about Jack White no way we I'm not that I'm not, I'm not that stupid we did the Soundwave tour I, I like I like having a, a functioning face <laughs> yeah. maybe it'd be a very pretty face but it's it's functioning no 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 eating out of a straw for me we we were on the Soundwave record fast label <laughs> <laughs> Jack White all associated Jack White projects the best. Seven star Jack White. We're, they we're they put out the Flying Nun book that I got for Christmas, so they're they're a okay in my book because there cause you that's, go. There it's you go. Awesome. Flying, Flying Nun book, Maggot Brain, <laughs> Wolf Eyes. So many wonderful things he's done for humanity. I you, I will not sit here and listen to you guys talk shit about uh, Jack you, White. I will not uh, tolerate. I would never. That's my best friend you're talking about. I met him in person and I shook his hand very firmly and looked him right in the eye and, and maybe maybe the, the maybe the best person in the entire world. The best. Maybe. maybe. We were on the Sandwave tour and uh Queens of the Stone Age and Pennywise were also on the tour. And Josh Homie and fucking Fletcher from Pennywise were walking around like they were the AEW tag team champions just like fucking with bands like true heels and it was not too much people could do about it to be honest with you you played in some fascinating bills you really have <laughs> we have <laughs> that tour in australia anytime we did the Soundwave tour it would be like the wildest experience like on tour with white zombie slayer and the <laughs> melvins <laughs> Oh, always an adventure. Slayer didn't I, play. I, I can't. I can't think of of any other. Um, yeah, sadly, I'm 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 sort of spacing on who the other great, uh, uh, let's say say closeted uh, wrestling fans and music are. But I I do have a story that um, I did I did take uh, Thurston Moore to uh, his first pro wrestling show. This this may have been in 1985. Uh, Damien, you might remember the brief period when AWA attempted to run big wrestling shows yeah. in New York. I think they they had a they had a weekly clip show. Pro Wrestling USA. Thank you, thank thank you, Daniel. That was the name of the show. Pro Wrestling USA. It was essentially AWA with a handful of people from NWA. They would bring in for this program, and yeah, they ran. I think they ran one or two Meadowland shows, maybe one show. 
at the Nassau Coliseum. Uh, the Nassau Coliseum show was very, very badly attended. And I remember that because I got there late and saw Rick Rubin and Danzig in the parking lot on, on their way into the show. They got there <laughs> as well. They, their tickets were much better than mine. I'm way up in the sky. They were they were down at at, uh, at ringside. But this uh, this Meadowlands show, which I think may have been the the first time they attempted to do a big show in New York, the the headline match for the show. Um, well, sorry, no, I think the headline match was uh, Rick Martell against Stan Hansen, and Stan Hansen uh, beat Rick Martell, took took the belt off him. That may have actually been the end of, of Rick Martell's uh, run in the AWA. I can't. I could look it up. But, um, but I, I digress. The 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 co-headline match for this was Kamala versus Sergeant Slaughter. Sergeant Slaughter had made the jump to the competition. That was going to be their big crowbar to get the East Coast behind behind the uh, the Rebel Company, as it were. It, it clearly didn't work. But, um, man, I, it's really hard. Like, when people say things like, well, you got to put it in context. You had to have been there at the time. I'm sorry. There is no context for this that works. Like, Kamala comes into the ring, the grass skirt, the wooden mask. He's got, he's got kimchi as his corner man, the, 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 the foe. Can tribal music is playing over the arena tannoy really loud. I mean, it's it's rough. It's yeah. rough. And we're standing there, and I'm I'm like, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have taken somebody to this show. Yeah, and Thurston, was- uh, Thurston, up and up until this point has not been particularly entertained. He just kind of like nods to me and he says, This this is this is kind of racist, right? Master of master of understatement. <laughs> Mr. Uh, Mr. Thurston Moore. Wow. Did also didn't you tell me this, or maybe John told me this? John Spencer had a WrestleMania party, or he went to a WrestleMania party. You took him to a WrestleMania party or something? I don't remember that. I, I honestly was, don't remember. I, th- I thought maybe it was. I used, I used I used to have a Super Bowl party every year. Some years, like some years, a hundred people would show up. Other years, almost no one would show up. It was completely completely random but um yeah john may have been invited to one of those parties i don't think he ever actually came there was one year that the only people who came and i mean only people who came were uh neil and jennifer from royal trucks and uh ned hayden oh my that god the, that was the entire <laughs> guest list for the entire four, four hour televised spectacle and uh <laughs> Yeah, let's, let's just say the vibes weren't uh, weren't uh, super friendly that that Super Bowl uh, Sunday. But uh, what did you guys do? Did they watch the game? Like, what? yeah, we watched the game. <laughs> we, we watched the game. I mean, I mean, Neil's a, Neil's a sports fan. Neil Neil likes sports, or he, he did he did in those days. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I uh, I mean, Jim Thurwell was a big wrestling fan back in the day. Does, does that count? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a, appreci- great, there's a great photo. Your brain this, this, to answer my silly question. There, there, there might this might even be in Chris Stein's book, but there's a fantastic picture 
of Jim Thurwell and Lydia Lunch in the in the front row of a WWF show at Madison Square Garden. Oh wow! And, and they I mean, they look like they're having the fucking time of their lives. And uh, yeah, no, I, I remember Jim definitely was was definitely very knowledgeable about the stuff. What, what's that guy's name who sang for Vom? Uh, Richard. Richard Meltzer. Meltzer. He uh, wrote the other about wrestling. Yeah, the other <laughs> Meltzer. But he would write about wrestling for Rolling Stone, right? I believe so. And, and and wrestling continued to be sort of referenced and peppered into his writings over, over the years. He definitely he definitely knew his stuff. And um, I mean, I mean, this is this is an obvious one, but Raymond Pettibone. Yeah. Who it's it's still uh seems seems to have a, a a loose grip on what's happening in wrestling dude he's darby allen's best friend darby uh, and him went to the supreme skateboard park the other day yeah when steve-o was on the show steve-o said he scared him he's like yeah he kind of scares me <laughs> well, yeah, oh no shit, dude i mean i remember the first few times that i saw like the little video vignettes that darby had for evolve and some other east coast places I mean, I, I remember. I mean, really enjoying the, the video clips, and also enjoying like various matches where I would watch him essentially get thrown around by like by a, like a rag doll by someone five times bigger than him, and he would often come back to to win, which it seems to still be the the, the general uh, the general pattern today. But I remember watching this stuff and like like he's called Darby Allen. It's like. Did he pick the name to distract from the fact that he looks like Eminem? <laughs> <laughs> he would. So we we filmed with him. We we're filming with him. Like we're doing some B-roll stuff. We're like, what do you do like for fun? And he's like, okay. So we drove out to this parking lot. He like, no one's like in the middle of nowhere. He puts on rudimentary P turns the volume up full blast. And then just sits there. Listen, rudimentary P <laughs> <laughs> and we filmed that all right well he and i have one thing in common man. <laughs> he is he is also like like it's so funny because he likes bands like leftover crack and he likes that kind of stuff mm -hmm. but the main shit he's into is like music that like 50 year old punk dudes like well guys this has been unbelievable and i will edit this accordingly thank you and let you guys know that anytime anytime you want to come back on here both of you together or separate are always welcome right, thanks i that appreciate was, that thank you. thank you thank you for doing this jared that this was very cool thank you daniel i'm glad we finally had a chance to uh see each other uh on zoom it was always been my dream to meet you via zoom you rather than <laughs> it's my it's my dream to meet everyone via zoom pretty much yeah that's that's all i really ever wanted out of the whole experience but uh yeah this has been fun can't wait to do it again